Hello, welcome to the NFL 100 show from Gridiron, celebrating the 100th season of the NFL by exploring some of the greatest teams, some of the greatest rivalries, uh, some of the greatest franchises in this week's case, told through the players, coaches, executives who lived through them. And this episode is going to be part one of a look at the Pittsburgh Steelers dynasty with Terry Bradshaw and Franco Harris joining us. This is the NFL 100 show. Will Gavin, uh, my favourite NFL historian, Matthew Sherry, with me. We're going to be talking about the Pittsburgh Steelers today. But first of all, we should clear up the ultimate question. It's bigger than schedule or schedule. It's dynasty or dynasty. Where are we sitting? Uh, dynasty. Right. Just wanted to make sure, because I will say dynasty for the rest of the show in that case. It would have been the direction I went in anyway. But, you know, I just wanted to make sure we're on the same page, buddy. It's great to know that we're on the same page, Well, It really is. Wonderful, wonderful thing. Now, when we think of dynasties, <laughs> uh, when we think of dynasties in the NFL, that great Steelers team of the 1970s is is right up in that conversation with the, the modern day Patriots, the kind of 80s and 90s Cowboys and 49ers, the early Packers. I think basically if you're doing a top five, that's probably it with the Steelers as the other team. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, and And the Browns, I think. Are significant as well, uh, both for what they did in the AFC and the NFL. Um, but in the modern era, which is what really people judge it on, they are right up there. Let's end the we, we can end the the episode later on, and I'll give you my view on where the Steelers sit in the in the hierarchy. If I was if I was going to overall look at it, but I think what's interesting about this dynasty is it it really it it, it splits completely into two parts that are like a mirror image of each other. You know, they won two Super Bowls. They had um, a year, no, two years where they never, then they won another two Super Bowls. And it's like a mirror image. But the two teams from the first two Super Bowls and the teams from the second two are very, very different. Why, so this episode, which part are we focusing on? We're going to focus on the second part, which might seem backwards, but we do have to relate it to a game. The game is the fourth Super Bowl they won against the Los Angeles Rams, which mirrors this week's schedule so we're going to focus on on part two there you go so so you mentioned the two distinct parts i know we're focusing on part two but just break down why we're talking about two distinct parts what they were and why why it's necessary to break them in half yeah i mean i think the interesting part about that is and we're going to say part a lot part 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 but the interesting part is that without part one part two never happens you know part one of the dynasty sees pittsburgh build their team around the formula of the day to win games. And that formula was an outstanding defence and a great rushing attack that could control the ball. And, you know, this was the era of of defence. I mean, it was just... I'll just read the list of names out. The Purple People Eaters in Minnesota, Miami's no-name defence, Dallas's Doomsday defence, Denver's Orange Crush defence, Atlanta's Grit Splits um, and Baltimore's Sack Pack. Uh, those are just the ones with names. In New England and Houston, you had two coaches running the 3-4 for really the first time in the NFL. So it, it really was the era of defence, and that was the formula that you had to follow. I mean, the, the Dolphins, more than any team, exemplified this. You know, just a, 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 a defence that doesn't give a lot of weight, is very fundamentally sound, and then a, an offence that has a great rushing attack. And and what we saw is this this record of 
you know, Jim Kick, Mercury Morris and Larry Zonga in Miami. The, the, I think it was the 72 season when um, when Morris and Zonga become the first two running backs on the same team to rush for 1,000 yards in the same season. That record would eventually be matched by Franco Harris and, and Rocky Blywell, a guy we met in, in at the Super Bowl in years past as well. And... And yeah, so basically the Steelers just follow this blueprint that's been laid out by the Dolphins and the, the Cowboys and, and the Baltimore Colts, the previous Super Bowl winners. So let, let's, hear, let's hear about that process from, from Terry Bradshaw, who, who starts by telling us how Chuck Noll basically told him in a, in a conversation that was the way the Steelers were initially going to be built. Chuck Noll had called me that offseason and said, we're going to go uh, basically in... He had observed the Miami Dolphins and how Kick and Donka, their two running backs, and how they ball control, play great defense, run the football, control the clock, rest the defense, move the ball on third down and get first downs and so on and so forth. So that was that was what he told me we were going to do. And then they ended up dra- drafting Franco, who was Rookie of the Year. And we went to that. We went to a ball control trapping game, which would be today considered a influence, it's called an influence running game where we weren't big dominant players like you see today. We were no 300 pounders. We were 250, 260. Yeah. So we had to use our speed, our speed and athleticism in the offensive line. And we had that, we had plenty of that. Uh, I'll give you an example real quickly. Just Larry Brown caught a touchdown pass. I'm, I'm going to back it up just a tad. He caught a touchdown pass in Super Bowl nine and played tackle the following year because of his athletic ability. So it was that kind of moving around of athletic ability. But in 72, when we got on a run, I remember telling my dad, we were playing four playoff teams that year. Uh, and I told my dad, we were playing the Raiders, uh, I believe the Raiders, Kansas, it was Kansas City, Minnesota, um, Dallas, I believe it was, one other team, which very easily might have been the Raiders. We beat all four of them, and I said, if we can win two of these four, we can, can we, we will prove to ourselves that we are a team to be reckoned with. Because we did you have to learn how to win in the NFL. You have to learn how to trust people around you in the NFL. You have to believe that you've got the talent to do it, and once all that comes together... Now you execute. And so winning, winning that game against the Raiders with an immaculate reception, as, they, as what it's called now, um, you go into the offseason going, okay, got a taste of this. I want a lot more. And it, I didn't think of the same old Steelers. I just thought we're a good football team now. And uh, the following 73 draft brought in more players. 74 draft brought in more great players. And now we've got this young dynamic football team. Terry Bradshaw speaking to us for the NFL 100 show. Uh, Terry Bradshaw discussing that, that how that team was put together, but, you know, for, for as much as that formula meant that we had some great teams, it, it didn't make for necessarily the high-point scoring, hyper-entertaining NFL we have nowadays. No, it never, and, and, you know, very briefly, and I think significantly, one pollster suggested that MLB had become more popular than the NFL again. Now the reason for that is that is the what was known as the dead ball era. It was just it just wasn't that interesting. You know the the, the great irony that uh, the seventies for the Super Bowl were enormous. That was the time when the Super Bowl became really Super Sunday, what we know it as now. But in the early part of the seventies, the games weren't that good, and 
and it's a it's a great paradox really um they they tried a lot of things to change it um they brought the hash marks in which i think they thought would open up the passing game but actually served to just open up the running game more so it, it just compounded the issue and then by the end of the 77 campaign i think this is where it hits a real low point which is the average points per game that teams had scored was 17.2 which for a reference point was was six fewer nearly than the 23.1 set in 1965 so you know in the space of 12 years teams were scoring six points a game less extrapolate that out over a season and it's a it's a significant significant amount so I mean, and I guess what is the ultimate compliment to the Pittsburgh Steelers and the fact that maybe emphasises that their defence, which was the steel curtain, which we will do basically a whole other podcast on in a few weeks, um, were the best of all those great defences. The NFL introduces a rule called the Mel Blunt rule. Now, Mel Blunt was Pittsburgh's star cornerback at the time, part of that great team. Uh, and the Mel Blunt rule is, is I, I think, more than any rule change in the history of the game, altered football the most immeasurably. I mean, basically, it, it, it's what we see today. So you've got the five-yard chuck zone in which defensive backs can no longer contact offensive players. Now, put that into an era when basically deep defenders could do what they wanted to wide receivers and imagine how significant that was. Everything that we see in the next decade, the West Coast offence and all of these innovations have roots in the formulation of the, uh, of the Mel Blunt rule. Now, the theory at the time was that this would blunt, pardon the pun, the, the Pittsburgh Steelers and, and some of the other great teams around that time. But in reality, it, it only really served to emphasise just how great this Steelers team were and perhaps how they were better than the other teams in that era. And there were some great teams in that era. The Cowboys went to five Super Bowls, in, uh, which is actually one more than Pittsburgh, but only won two. But the Steelers stood above the rest. So let's speak to a guy who was really the star in the early run, in Franco Harris as the running back. And he talks about how that process really showed off the stars on the offensive side of the ball for Pittsburgh, but in the passing game. To me, the, the true potential of, of, of Bradshaw and Swan and Stallworth really came out. And... Uh, and, and I tell people that, that that's what I think that makes us a pretty, a pretty good team. You know, we won two Super Bowls before the rule change yeah. and two Super Bowls after the rule change with the same people. And, and like to me, that's Incredible. I guess the sign of a truly great team as well is that that adaptability and, and ability to win in in multiple different ways. I, I feel like is a, is a rare thing. Oh, I mean, with the same people. Yeah. That's what you know. One thing that yeah, teams can change and fit in, but we did it with the uh, with the same people, but. When you look at 74, 75, 78, 79, you know, Super Bowl years, and it shows the greatness of our team. Uh, but, but to me, 1976 showed the true character of our team. Yeah. 
there were lots of injuries in that year and and everything weren't they like it was and was that the year you guys started did you, did you have a, a, a oh, I have a thing to 77 where maybe you started one and three no, that was seventy six. Yeah, okay. I think it was uh, I think it was, was it one and three or one and four. Yeah. But uh but but to win nine games in a row in the situation that we were in and how we won it is incredible. Yeah, I think that was the year when the when the defensive numbers as well were at the the best if you look back at points allowed for, for you guys throughout that time. I think the, the defence in, in 76 was was the best of any that you, you guys put out as well. And, and but, you know, I tell a few people that that shows the kind because our backs were against the wall. Uh, uh, we had to find ways to win. And, and even though uh, you know, the passing game really couldn't be part of it. That, uh, <clears throat> you know, that, uh, that we found a way to win. The situation in the Pacific is worse than reported. The Japanese are planning something big. What's the target? Midway. From the director of Independence Day. A couple dozen planes against all Japanese fleet. We got the order to launch! Discover the incredible true story. Today we're going to be underdogs. Of the World War II battle. Good luck, boys. Fire! Midway. Download and keep now. Hazel Irvin here, and I'm at Mammoth Insurance in Leeds, where Kate has arranged an office chair race to fundraise for sport relief. And these riders have got their kit on. They are rearing to go. And they're off! Taking an early lead and smashing injustice right out of the park, it's Daphne from Accounting, riding the spreadsheet demon chair. Up comes Nina from HR on Beat Me and You're Fired, closely followed by Mark from Marketing on the 9 to 5 chair. Even Javid from Health and Safety's at it, waving his clipboard like crazy. Go easy there, Javid. We don't want any injuries, fella. And from nowhere, it's Jenny on El Chero Loco, rolling right over poverty to cross the line first. And the crowd goes loco. Unbelievable. You can help change the world too. Just order your free fundraising pack at sportrelief.com. Sportrelief. It's game on. This message was brought to you by Acast. Franco Harris here of the Immaculate Reception fame speaking with the NFL 100 show. You're listening to the NFL 100 show from Gridiron with Will Gavin and Matt Sherry. Uh, So Franco Harris uh, speaking with us there now, as well as validating some Hall of Fame careers like Bradshaw, Stallworth, Swan. It was also another feather in the cap for Chuck Knoll. Yeah, I think it was. And and, and this is just my own take on it. Chuck Knoll was a defensive coach. You know, he was a defensive coordinator who became a head coach. And the Steelers teams that we saw in the early 70s were were the living embodiment of what, of, of, of I guess, Chuck Knoll's view on football. Um, and, and I think that is summed up most by some of the conversations I've had with guys on that team. Joe Green... I mean, Joe Green and Chuck Knoll had a special relationship, so it's a, it's maybe a bad example. Green was his first draft pick, and and 
and it, it was just a real love affair both ways. But Green was reverential in talking about Chuck Noll. That isn't necessarily the case with some of the offensive guys, and particularly Bradshaw. I think this this clip that we're about to play is is, is really revealing. Um, his relationship with Noel was very different. It was a productive working relationship, but but not necessarily the the most warm and friendly one. He was a he was a tough guy. Uh, you almost got the feeling, or I did. I'm speak personally that he really cared more about his defense than he cared about his offense. Uh, he loved his defensive players. I mean. And they were awesome. I don't blame him one bit for that. And offensively, I think we frustrated him because um, we would make mistakes or wouldn't complete a pass. We didn't throw the football that much. He was extremely frustrated with me. He'd call me in and tell me I'm not studying enough. He'd say, you got to be like Johnny Unitas. you got to be like Brian Greasy. I'd tell him, but I'm not those guys. I'm Terry Bradshaw. And he didn't like me. He just didn't. He didn't like my my uh, what he what he saw as my immaturity, which he was right, and my inexperience. Uh, he he, I think he saw that as a as a childlikeness in me that I didn't really focus and concentrate on being a great quarterback. But he was he was so wrong, so yeah. so off on that completely. Uh, but he wasn't a man. Chuck was. So smart, but he wasn't any, and you know, you see guys like that that are so smart, but they really lack some common sense. Yeah. You know, they, they don't have, he always made me, I never was comfortable in his presence in 14 years. Never comfortable. Always kind of afraid of him. Uh, didn't know how to talk to him. He just wasn't someone that he felt like he could just sit down, have a beer with and shoot the shit. You know, it was different. And, uh, you know, back in those days, I always tell people, we didn't have all, they had 20-something coaches in today's game. Back then, we had, what, six, yeah. seven? No no quarterback coach, no offensive coordinator. Yeah, uh, I, I guess the they, didn't, they didn't have those guys to act as, act as middlemen almost in that, you know. I imagine yeah. there's, there's times Bill yeah, Belichick and Tom Brady true. don't get on, but then Brady will go and talk to McDaniels or guys like that, and, and I guess that wasn't yeah. so much the case then. No, it wasn't at all. Um, he brought in a guy named Babe Pirelli as my quarterback coach. I love Babe Pirelli. He played many years in the NFL, and we had a great relationship. And actually, uh, started throwing the ball well, started understanding the coverages and stuff. And that was because of Babe Pirelli. And the next year, after I had this good year, second year in the league, he, he gets rid of him. I don't know why. I had no idea, and then I had no voice. You're exactly right, because I was with him, and I wasn't with Chuck. After he made leaves, we were sitting in a meeting with the head coach, and the head coach is our coordinator and our and our uh, our quarterback coach. It, it, you know, we just sat in there and watched films, and always we studied defense, 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 yeah. and um, it was different. It was. It's totally different. I wish it would have been different, but how can you argue with the results? <laughs> yeah, the results absolutely. were pretty good. Terry Bradshaw speaking with us. For all of what Bradshaw says there, uh, Matt, that we do eventually see the, the offensive guys, particularly in the passing game, get to break out. You look at the difference in Bradshaw's numbers across the career. They're, they're pretty stark on that. He was voted the MVP in 1978 as the offense took it to another level. So let's hear from him on that era 
for Bradshaw in that offense? What happened in the first part? I threw 11 passes in Super Bowl 9, 23, maybe in 10, and then over to the 30s and, and 13 and 14. So the game, when they took away the, the uh, five yard after five yards, you can't touch the receivers. Uh, with the two Hall of Fame wide receivers, then you then you saw the offense. It was a listen. It was the same offense in that second part that you're talking about. That was the first part. Yeah. It's just that we emphasized passing as opposed to running. And, and so how, you're right. How much? How much did it suit you once the rules changes changed? Because you were a you were had a huge arm. Were, were more of a gunslinger type and quarterback who was almost being restricted by the by the run-first defense approach that was really the approach most teams of that day were using. But how, how much did right. you enjoy it once those rules did change? Well, it took, uh, since I called, I called my own plays, it freed me up and allowed me to become aggressive mentally. Uh, I could go out and throw three times in a row uh, and not worry about it. I had a great defense uh, as opposed to, run, run, and then try to get a first down on third and long, or run, run, third and short, and run again. Uh, but that, because that's what you, that's what he wanted, but that's what I did. Uh, I didn't, I didn't particularly like it, but we were winning, and I was, I was enjoying calling a running game um, to be successful. And so when we opened it up and was throwing the football, uh, I really enjoyed that part. Uh, because now it frees me up to not be be afraid to throw on first down. Don't be afraid to throw on second down, as opposed to we must run, we must run, we must run. Now it throw, throw. Okay, I'll run. Now run. Now throw. But we still only average probably twenty eight passes. But that's you know that's ten more than what we were doing. Was it, was it nice though for the recognition to come? Obviously, like NFL MVP awards, Super Bowl MVP awards as well. That must have been a nice. A nice byproduct of yeah. kind of becoming the, the face of the Steelers, almost. You know, I um, I never was one that sought out recognition for anything other than being the the leader of the team. I didn't I didn't care anything about MVP in the league. I didn't care anything about making the Pro Bowl. I just wanted to do my job and go home. <laughs> that's yeah. all I wanted to do. That's, that's what I was being paid for, uh, and that was fine with me. To see other quarterbacks, uh, Brian Seif at Cleveland running the West Coast offense, doing amazing. To see uh, Kenny Anderson at Cincinnati running the West Coast offense, amazing. To see uh, a lot of these, Kenny Stabler out in Oakland, who was, to me, was he was amazing. Joe Namath, he was amazing. Uh, I enjoyed that, but that's not, that was not the game that my coach wanted. And I did what he wanted. And when, being all pro or being the MVP in the league, as I look back on it now, I, I forgot about some of this stuff. Uh, it's nice to have it. I'm 70 years old now. I'm like, hey, I forgot I was the MVP in the league. I remember I was the first quarterback to throw. Uh, I broke the record for the merger of the NFL and the AFL with 28 touchdown passes. Yeah. 28. They do that in nine games now. <laughs> but So I guess you could say I appreciate it today. It, it was not something that I uh, particularly 
gave a lot of thought to. It just, it's just not the way I'm raised. I'm just not like that. What, what, what do you think it says about that Steelers team that, you know, there were a lot of other great teams in that era, the, the Dolphins for that two-year right. run. And, and, and one, not, what does it say about the Steelers that they were able to win four Super Bowls in that era? But, but most importantly, win four Super Bowls either side of those changes in rules because the game did become a completely right. different game, probably more so than any Amen. rule changes we've ever had. It speaks volumes that the same group of guys could win two either side yeah. of that. Yeah, and do it two different ways because the defense in the second, the defense in 13 and 14 Super Bowls wasn't nearly as good as the defense in 9 and 10. And I think they'll tell you that. Um, it's, a, it's a validation of a group of men that were put together by Chuck Knoll and the fact that they were so consumed with winning and not personal accolades and that's how you win. And our measure as football players in our profession, I listen, I've never had a person come up to me and say, hey, Terry, how many touchdown passes did you throw for? Hey, Terry, how many yards did you throw for? What was your completion percentage? So what they do say is, hey, uh, you got one of your rings? Where are your rings? Wow, four Super Bowls. And the, and. And we had a two-year period there where, where, we, where we were being uh, ruled, well, we're too old. We went 9 and 10, two years off in the Super Bowls. And so they said, well, the Steelers are too old now. And then, da, 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 da. And then we went 13 and 14. So we went four Super Bowls in six years. And that is the validation of greatness. And some call it a, a mini dynasty. Call it what you want to call it. But that was a great football team put together, Matthew, that you, that's just, it's just uh, a dream. It, it's hard to imagine that. Nowadays, you say, okay, we need a wide receiver, so we'll go get one on free agency. We need a tackle. We'll go get one. Spend $20 million. Back then, it was all drafting, baby. All drafting. Yeah. You screwed up that draft. You, if you screwed up a draft, you had to wait another year. There was no going out picking up players. Yeah, absolutely. So it was. It's all. It is all about winning. It will always be about winning. That's all I cared about. I don't care about the rest of it. And I'm proud that I was a quarterback of that football team, and we accomplished as much as you, as we did. I salute the city. I salute all those players, and I go home. Terry Bradshaw speaking with us for the NFL 100 show. So in that Steelers dynasty, really one of the all-time greatest, wasn't it? Now, you said at the beginning of the show that we were going to talk about where they would place in our all-time list. I want to get out ahead of this slightly and say who I think is the greatest dynasty of all time. And I think if you're going to count the double dynasty as one... Yeah. It's this current Patriots. Yeah, and that's exactly what I wanted what to I was say it before say. you did, so nobody accused us of any kind of bias if they know that you're a Steelers fan. Uh, oh, Steelers fan. Patriots fan. <laughs> oh, I wish you were a Steelers fan. Um, I agree. I mean, that, that ultimately, the question you have to ask yourself is are the Patriots two dynasties or one? If they're one, then it's undoubtedly the Patriots for me. Not just because they've won more Super Bowls than any of the others or more championships, I should say. 
than any of the others. Um, although you could argue that it, in a similar argument, you could say that the Packers' earliest dynasty from 29 to 45 was similar and they won six titles as well. So they're, they're right in line with those in terms of championships. Um, I think if you separate the Patriots, then the Steelers are number one. Um, and I include the Lombardi Packers in that. And and it's because of everything we've discussed in this episode. You know, that, that ability... I can't emphasise enough how how much the game changed overnight with the Mel Blunt rule. And, you know, had the, had the Steelers taken five years to adjust to it and and then won two championships, it would, for me, be less impressive than being able to immediately transform themselves overnight as that as the game changed so dramatically. I think that's just so impressive. Um you know, if I look at the other great teams, that Lombardi Packers team, that they followed the same formula to victory every time. Now they did it better than anybody else had ever done it. I mean they won five championships in a in an outrageously short space of time. Um but also I think you need to factor in compared to the to the Packers, you know, the the first two of no first three of Green Bay's titles under Lombardi were done just in the NFL. You know, by this point, the NFL had doubled basically in size, or, or certainly close to doubled in size. It was it was a more competitive league because of that. Um, so yeah, for me, the Steelers. If you're not separating the Patriots, um, if you are separating the Patriots, sorry, is number one. But I would argue that the Patriots probably shouldn't be separated, and therefore they sit at number two for me. I mean, they're number three for me behind the 49ers, but there we go. Yeah, I mean, uh, the 49ers, <laughs> I think the 49ers and the Packers are, are, are the next ones. I mean, the 49ers is the same debate, isn't it? Do you separate it out from Walsh to Seifert, who won two of the five championships? I guess you don't because, so, I mean, one of those was the season after Walsh had, had won one and retired. So, so it's a fascinating debate. I mean, one of the as well as doing the book for the game programs this year, if anybody bought them, I did a, a four-part series on the greatest teams in the NFL over the years. The first one was, I think, the first 50 years, and then I separated the second 50 into three. And and that was fascinating to put together. And, and as I was doing it, I was thinking, well, how would I rank these if I was just ranking them overall? And I, and I think what I've just said is how I would rank them. I don't know, the 49ers and the Packers are the, is the one that I probably couldn't separate. That's a really tough one. Right, that does round us up now, this time for the NFL 100 show uh, from Gridiron. Uh, do you know what we're going to be doing next week while you're on the road? Uh, have You'll have a look while this? I say what we've got coming up this weekend. Uh, coming up this weekend, we've got, um, uh, we'll be previewing the action for week 10, of course. And uh, yeah, as always, uh, every week in the NFL looks pretty tasty. But there are a couple of real standout games from this weekend coming up. Um, we won't talk about Thursday Night Football Raiders charges. We'll review that briefly on the show but Cowboys Vikings on Sunday night football 49ers Seahawks on Monday night football Packers Panthers in the nine o'clock window there are some real NFC bangers over this weekend so we'll get into that on that show as well what's coming up on next week's NFL 100 Matt Uh, we are finally going to do the 1972 Miami Dolphins and I've realized that in the past I have said that we're going to do this but we are this time they play the Bills. Um, the team who came closest to beating the Dolphins that year were the Buffalo Bills. I think the game was twenty four twenty three, if I remember rightly. So that's the angle. It's a one point game. The closest they came to losing in a perfect season. Just a couple of other ones that that would have been interesting. Uh, the Patriots against the Eagles. Obviously, two Super Bowls, including 
the one that we don't want to talk about. And the Cowboys-Lions is interesting to me just because it is, not just because I'm at the game, but it's uh, Barry Sanders' only playoff game was in was between those two teams. I think that's interesting. All right. Maybe we'll touch on a few of those other ones as well then. Matt, thank you very much. Thank you, everyone, for listening at UK Gridiron on Instagram and at Gridiron on Twitter, as we can say, as I was saying at the end of yesterday's show, uh, with Matt heading off on the tour. There'll be lots of exclusive content from him and Josh coming up on there, so keep an eye out for it. Uh, otherwise, thank you very much for listening. This has been the NFL 100 show. Bang in. Hazel Irvin here at Spencer Park in Coventry, where 37-year-old Emily and her mates are taking part in a fancy dress fun run to fundraise for sports relief. And that means I've been lumbered with her dog, Tilly. Oh, Tilly, not over there. And they're off. An impressive array of costumes on show today, everything from penguins to pirates, all taking on poverty and injustice. Respect. Spectacular. Poverty getting crushed by Katie on a space hopper. Easy. Coming into the final stretch now, and it's neck and neck. I think we're in for a photo finish here. But it's Suzanne smashing through injustice. She is our winner. Hey, Tilly, get off my tutu. Tilly, sit. You can help change the world too. Just order your free fundraising pack at sportrelief.com. Sportrelief, it's game on. This message was brought to you by Acast.